the time, I'm like 23, almost 24. I got a four-story townhome. I got three cars. I got a six-figure job. And I'm like, this is great. Now what? And people are like, well, now you do the same thing for the next 40, 50 years. And at some point, you get married, you retire, had a good life. And I'm like, that sounds boring. <laughs> like, I want more than that. And I didn't know the pathway to getting more, especially at that age. And so this idea of starting your own company that can make money while you sleep was like a path to more. And so the risk was, I'm willing to give up what I have now for the potential of more. Welcome to Behind the Thread, the podcast where you have conversations with your favorite content creators on Twitter so you can learn more about the person behind the tweets. So you know what's interesting? People always ask me why I focus my podcast around Twitter. Here is what I tell them. Instagram is where you find the most beautiful, visually appealing content and creators in the world. TikTok is where you find the most entertaining content. But Twitter is where you go to find the people with the best ideas. This is what this podcast brings. A behind the scenes look at how some of the best creators on Twitter have built a powerful online audience, a profitable online business, and just a one-of-one life that works for them. We talk about it, we break it down, pull out the lessons, so you can do it too. With that said, welcome to Behind the Thread. Let's get into it. Mac, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Before we get into it, one thing I do want to mention is initially when I set out like doing this podcast, there were certain guests I had in my mind that was like, they need to come on. Like, they're going to come on. I was like manifesting it. And you were definitely one of those people. So it's kind of a nice, it's a nice little full circle moment for me. But yeah, let's, let's get into it. Mac, just to begin, can you kind of just give like, like a one minute, like intro, what you do, what you're working on, all of that good stuff? Yeah, I'm a hardware engineer. I'm a software engineer turned two-time founder turned VC. I'm currently the managing partner and founder of Rare Breed Ventures, a pre-seed to seed venture fund based in Baltimore, Maryland. That that was like super concise. I like that. Okay, you know what? I want to. This is where I want to start because I was researching you over the weekend, and this one tweet came up, and I was like, okay, I wanna I wanna start the conversation with this one. Okay. So this is what you wrote. You said, "I'm from Baltimore. I went to public schools. I dropped out of college my junior year of college because I got a top secret clearance and got a job at." Northrop uh, Grunman started making six figures at 21 quit that job to start two startups over six years with one exit and now I'm a VC so pretty incredible stuff in one tweet <laughs> I see you like smiling as I read that as well okay you know what? let's let's start from the jump okay explain okay so going to college how did the job come about how did the top secret clearance come about tell me all of that uh, it came about through extreme arrogance and ignorance. <laughs> That's pretty much how that happened. So when I got to college, I was hell-bent on creating a strong resume. And on my sophomore year, they were having a job fair on campus. And the job fair was for graduating seniors, so people in their fourth year about to leave. And I was in my second year, and I was like, well, I'm smarter and better than most of these folks, so I'm going to go in here and try and get me an internship. And so I literally handed my resume to every single booth in that job fair and told them that my resume was going to be one of the most incredible resumes they saw all day. Truly believe that. I don't know if that's true or not, but hey, that's how I felt. One of the booths I went to 
somebody from the booth pulled me aside and said, hey, we're here looking for graduating seniors to hire full time, but I run the student program. Let me take this and I'll take a look at it. And I was like, cool. And so then like one day I get this packet in the mail. It's called the FS86. And what the FS86 is, it is the document you fill out to apply for a top secret clearance. So what I didn't realize is that booth that where that lady was that I talked to was for one of the secret organizations. Like one of those organizations you see in movies, but you never think about like, like when you see like one of those three letter organizations in movies, you never think about like, how does somebody get a job there? Like, like how does somebody get a job at Interpol? Or how does somebody get a job at CIA? Like, like I never considered anything like that. Like it's just something you see in movies, but it's for one of those organizations that was local. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and so like, I didn't even realize what I was applying to. I was like, all right, sure, we'll do that. And so they had this program called a co-op program where basically every other semester you would go to work there for the Department of Defense as a full-time employee. So I filled out the form, got my clearance, and next thing I know, I'm I'm working for the government for as a full time employee as a sophomore in college, thinking to myself like, well, why do I need college anymore? Okay, nice. Wait, so at this point, I want to know the mindset. Like, I want to know how your mind was working because you already came in confident, and then you actually got something. So, were you thinking you're like the man at this point, or what? Oh, it was weird because like it's still a student program, right? So like I'm making the equivalent. Of like 30 grand a year and this is in like oh six like 2006 I'm making like the equivalent of 30 grand a year but i'm only there for a semester at a time so like only for like less than half and i'll never forget the first and like and every time you came back for a different semester you rotate to a different office and the first office i was in and grind you this is oh six when i walked in the first day they said look we do mostly pearl programming in here but some of us do python you pick Pearl was old school and I had never heard of Python. So I was like, I learned Python. Python is like the most popular thing on the planet today. Back then, nobody heard of it. So yeah, I'll do Python. And I'll never forget, I'm working in this office, doing really cool stuff, working with amazingly large sets of data, like crazy sets of data, even like by today's standards, right? Like, Like more data than can fit in like any of our computers. And I'll never forget, I, there was this day I'm like working and I'm, me and my coworker are there, and my coworker is talking to me about some code, and we're helping each other with some code, going back and forth, going back and forth, going back and forth. And I'll never forget, like, I looked at him, and I just, like, stared at him for a moment. I'm like, me and him are working on the same project. His skills are a little bit better than mine, just because he's older, but, like, I can hold my own. I'm in college making the equivalent of 30 grand a year in student program. He's not. He's making 85 grand, and I know he doesn't have a college. Why am I in college anymore? <laughs> that was like the moment college died in my mind. I stayed in college for like another year after that, but like in my mind, college was pointless. So I think when I hear those like two stories, so you going to like the college fair and feeling like, you know, I'm going to get a job over these like grad, like these seniors or whatever. And then you working at this company and looking at the guy beside you and being like, how come? Like I should, why am I even in college? Like I should be just doing what this guy's doing. The thing that jumps out to me is like the, and you mentioned it at the start, right? Like kind of like the arrogance, the audacity, the, but, but it's more than that, right? It's like feeling like you belong. And I feel like, especially when you're younger, you can have confidence, but to like step into the work environment and be like, have that feeling of belonging, like that confidence like that, 
I feel like it's unique. So what I want to know is where did that come from? Like, why did you, why did you even think like that? I don't know if I thought like that per se, as much as like, so in college, I was kind of coming into my own and like this confidence was building and I was like a better coder than a lot of my classmates and I was doing really well. But when I got my job, like when I left the, when I left the student program and like dropped out of school and got a job, that was more out of desperation at that point. Like that's a period in my life where my father had recently passed away. I had a terrible semester in college. And like all this other stuff was just like falling apart around me. And so it's just like, Ugh, this doesn't feel good. And then I'm like, I'm looking at like trying to figure out how to pay for school. Like if I went to student student program again, I'm like, you know, I just I just need a job. I just need to figure this out. So I put my resume on Monster. And, like, I didn't understand the value of having a top-secret clearance. It's like, here I am in college, my third, like, I'm a junior in college. I put my resume on Monster. Next thing I know, I'm getting job offers from everywhere. And I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) To the fact that my first job out of college was a job as a database administrator. I had zero database training. They had literally brought me in to interview for a Python development job. And I was the first developer they had met who ever heard of Python. They determined I wasn't senior enough for the position. So that company called me back three days later to interview for a completely different job that I did not apply for as a DBA. And like, it's like, and it's like for the government. So it's top secret. So they can't really tell you much. So it's like loosely talking to me about the job. And then at the end of the interview, they asked me, do you want the position? They didn't ask for my transcripts. They didn't want to know my grades. They didn't they asked. I told them, like, you know, I don't know any of this stuff. They're like, yeah, well, we'll send you to training. Within three months, you'll go to training. You'll be fine. Like, cool. They're like, so do you want the job? Yeah, I mean, I, not only do I want the job, I need the job. So, like, yeah, I'll take it. And then they like, so how much do you want to make? And I'm thinking to myself, like, when I went to college, I'm like, look, if I graduate, I'll make 50 grand a year. I'm doing all right. Well, I ain't graduated yet, but I'm close enough. So I'm like, oh, man, you know. So I threw a number out there. They ended up paying me 20 grand more than what I asked for. And my mind was blown. I was like, yo, what just happened? This is incredible. And so you know what I did? I freaked out because I didn't know how to do that job. I didn't know how to do databases. I just told these people that I would figure it out and I'd be the best employee they ever had. And I was just talking out of my butt. And you know what I did, though? So it was, a, it was like three weeks before my start date. I got some online tutorials. I actually downloaded some online tutorials on MySQL and taught myself databases over the course of three weeks. And just watched all the, like every day, I'm doing six, seven hours of just like video tutorials and practicing to learn. So when I stepped onto the job, it was doing some Oracle stuff. So it was some specialty stuff I had to learn. But for the base, for the basics, I had down. And, you know, within, you know, my first six, seven weeks on the job, they told me, like, yeah, you don't need the training. You good. You fine. And I just, I, from there, I ran with it. And I knew in that moment, oh, I can do anything. Like, you give me enough lead time, I can teach myself this stuff, and I can do anything. That's like, it was like the beginning mm. of... I don't know. That's a powerful... Um, kind of how I, my, thought, my thought process... It's a powerful works. moment when it, like, clicks in your mind. I feel like it's usually after a certain accomplishment. When it, like, clicks in your mind, you can do anything you want. It's just like a matter of time. Like, it's like, how long is it going to take? It's not if it's going to happen. It's like, how long? I'm curious because I think it's kind of, 
it's kind of a gift and a curse when you have the ability to make people believe in you. Like when you can speak and people believe you're going to get it done. And the reason I say that is because I think I've had it in certain instances in my life and it can lead to like bravado with no substance. Like it can lead to you're just a talker kind of. Like you actually have to, like if you can really speak something up, you then also have to deliver. And so I'm curious what motivates you. Like what motivated you at that time? Because I think a lot of the time when people are younger and they can talk and get something, they don't necessarily have the experiences that teach them they need to deliver at the same time. So when you were training for like three weeks before, like trying to get that skill set down, trying to learn SQL, like what was motivating you to do that? Never wanted to be homeless again. I recently come from a period of time of being homeless, living in the truck of a family friend. I know what it's like to be as low as low can get. And so again, like it's desperation. It's like, I never want to go back there. I never want to feel that. And it's interesting because as my career progresses, I go from never wanting to be that to being, if I ever go back there, I know how to get back up. But that's a progression over time. I'm curious, like, what your relationship with fear is. Because I think one of the things, when you have, like, these traumatic life events, right, it can be a powerful motivator because it's almost like you're aspiring for things to run away from the fact that, like, I'd never want to have to go through that again. Like you're, you're trying to go to this new reality, but it can also be a curse in the sense of like, sometimes to win it really big, you have to take risk. And like when you're taking risk, you can either hit it big or you can just completely foul out. Like you can just go f- literally to broke again. And one thing when I've been following you, when I've read your story, is like you continue to take risks. You continue to bet on yourself. So I'm curious, like, what would you say your relationship with fear is? I wouldn't say I've conquered fear. It's just, I know what real fear is. I know what real danger is. And like, nothing that I'm pursuing is real, like real dangerous, right? Because like, like, here's the thing, like, I quit my job and I want to go start a company. Okay. What's the worst that can happen? Well, the, the, I could blow through all my money. The company could not work out. I could lose everything I have. And I end up on the couch at one of my best friend's house and my mom's house. But I have an incredible skill set that's always in demand. And if you gave me three to five weeks, I could find a job making anywhere from 80 grand to six figures to plus. Eh, it's not that bad. It's like I could lose everything. And then within a five week period of that, I could be back on my feet. Okay. Like, I mean, losing everything sucks, but it's not the end of the world. So I always had this perspective of like, how bad could it really be? And it's not as bad as people think it could be. Because like, I know when it's bad. I know what's bad feels like when you could lose everything and like not have anything else to fall back on. Man, at this point, I built up a career. I built up skills. Like, like I could, I could figure out a way to make money if I had to. Mm, all right, let's go try this. And if, yeah. you know, if I don't make it work. That's interesting. I like that. Because like, you're always willing to take it back to like ground yeah. zero. Like you don't want to. But like, if the moment calls for it, you're willing to take it back to like where it all started. I think that's, you're kind of a dangerous individual if you have that, if you have that like bow in your quiver, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to have worked out for you. So we'll say dangerous. dangerous or- okay. So you, you get the, you get the job. They're paying you more than what you ever thought they would, especially straight out of university. Tell me where like the two startups come in. Like, why did you ever quit the job and go for that? 
the reason the two startups come, what happens next is, so one of the things about being in that student program for the government was, it was like 300 students, right? Another 300 students, like 30 of us are black. It's like anywhere else, all the black kids kind of hung together, right? The thing was, in order to be in that program, you either had to be an electrical engineering major, a computer science major, or a math major. So my core group of friends in my early 20s were these really well-educated black engineers, men and women, from mostly Ivy League and historically black colleges, right? Like that was that was my group of friends. These are people I hung out with, I partied with, went to D.C. and got rowdy with, right? And one of those individuals is a gentleman by the name of Patrick Jackson. Patrick today is the CTO of a startup in Silicon Valley called Disconnect, a VPN company. But back then, Patrick was obsessed with being the black Mark Zuckerberg, right? So like for context here, the iPhone comes out in 07. Patrick builds his first iPhone app in 08. He was that dude, right? He like, he's the reason I learned PHP because he wouldn't shut up about how Facebook was originally built in PHP and how we all need to learn it, right? Like he was that guy. He was also the first person I ever saw him make money off of that. He was also the first person I ever saw quit his job, move to California, because some dudes who used to work at Google gave him money to build more apps. I didn't have the language at the time to recognize that a group of VCs had given him money to build a company. I just knew my friend, who had a skill set similar to me, had quit his job to go to California to go build something new and make a lot more money than what we could make working for the government. And so like that's the, that's the beginning of a bunch of me and my friends kind of figuring out the startup thing, right? So after he does that, so he leaves, he quits the government in 09. I started my first startup in 2010. And at the time when I started that company, I didn't know what a startup was. I didn't know what a VC was. And I didn't even know what networking was. I didn't know anything. Me and my two co-founders were just three black engineers trying to figure it out, not knowing what we were doing. And somehow- I'm like curious, is there ever like an intimidation factor? (laughs) like i think there's so many and the reason i ask i think there's so many people that they're working a job maybe they have a startup idea or they want to be an entrepreneur they want to be their own boss but they're like once you start earning money it's like now you have something to lose you're like oh i'm gonna leave my job and like start a company but the way that you speak it doesn't really seem like you ever saw a downside it was like only upside it was only like my friend did this i can also do this and it could be something on that could take me to like a new level. Is that is that accurate? Or at the time, were you like really scared? <laughs> I mean, there's always fear there, right? Like it's always working against your fear. But I think for me was like at the time I'm like 23, almost 24. I got a four story townhome. I got three cars. I got a six figure job. And I'm like, this is great. Now what? And people are like, well, now you do the same thing for the next 40, 50 years. And at some point you get married, you retire, had a good life. I was like, that sounds boring. <laughs> like, I want more than that. And I didn't know the pathway to getting more, especially at that age. And so this idea of starting your own company that can make money while you sleep was like a path to more. And so the risk was, I'm willing to give up what I have now for the potential of more. But I didn't know what it meant to say I'm willing to give up what I have now. So, like, I mentioned all the things that I had at that time. Four and a half years later, we sell the intellectual property of that company to a division of a Fortune 100 company. Amazing achievement. At the time we sold that company, I had a car. So you didn't have a house. There was no house anymore. So take everything I had at the beginning, and by the end of it, I have a car. (laughs) Right? That's it. 
And so, like, <laughs> there was no house. There was two of those cars were gone. That six-figure job was gone. And so was a fiancé in the mix. Gone. Right? I lost all of that in the process of chasing this dream. And so just in the moment, I was ignorant to what it meant to lose it all. And then I did. Why did you lose all that stuff? That was just to, like, fund the startup? Or is it because you were just so intense on that, that, like, other things just fell off? Or what was it? Both. I was too intense to it and to fund the startup. And startups are hard. You know, the stories you read, TechCrunch aren't really how these things work. People don't just give you money because you got a great idea. Getting customers is a lot harder than people try to make it out to be. Figuring, like, all that stuff is so hard and it takes so long and it takes so much. It could take a lot of money, a lot of effort. And, like, just the money to survive long enough to get to the point where you have a profitable company or have a company making money can be really hard. So, like, I just lost it all. And really, a lot of it was I lost it all because I was learning so much along the way. I started so far behind. That spent so what much were you time learning? learning. Everything. I was literally learning everything. I was learning how to be a CEO. I was learning about marketing. I was learning about go-to-market strategies. I was learning about UX and UI. I was learning about how to manage a team. I was learning about how to hire. I was learning about investing. I was learning about pitching. And I probably spent way too much time thinking about pitching and investors and raising capital and not enough time thinking about how to get customers, right? All that stuff. And so, like, I was just learning everything from the ground up. I'm curious about this because I think for myself, I'm quite like an intense personality, especially when I get my, like, mindset on something. Like, it has to go that way. Like, I, I have to make it happen. I'm curious if you think there's a cost. Actually... What what would you say is the cost to being to intensity? Obviously, for you, I guess you saw it in like kind of a tangible way because like these different things were like falling out of your life. But what would you say is the cost? And like, do you even think it's worth it? Like in a rational sense, if you were an economist looking at pros and cons, weighing benefits and then you know downsides, you think it's worth it? I don't know if it's worth it. I would tell you, everybody's got to make that determination for themselves. It's different for every person. But I'll tell you this, right? Like during the process of me going through and building my company, I became a workaholic. And that's what I called it. Like, I didn't have time for friends. I didn't have time for parties. I didn't have time. I'm building and grinding towards trying to build the next big thing. Y'all can have fun. I'm working. And I worked and I worked and I worked. And I got to a point where it worked so much that I was obsessed with it. It wasn't until I. Go to a movie. A friend of mine invites me to a movie. All right, we're going to go enjoy this movie. And I couldn't sit through the movie. I almost, I started to feel this anxiety and started to physically have a panic attack because I was freaking out that I wasn't in front of my computer and I was afraid I was going to miss an email that would get me to the next partnership, get me to the next customer, get me to the next whatever. And so I left the movie. It was in that moment that I recognized something was wrong. Mm. I was working so much that I was losing myself in. Like, I couldn't enjoy life outside of work. And work wasn't necessarily enjoyment. I'm grinding towards this goal, but that's all I had. Literally, that's all my, my entire life was wrapped up in this one thing. And I became, I started to realize just how unhealthy it was. Cause like, I recognized in this moment, like, I could work 23 hours a day, sleep for an hour, and when I wake up, I would still have more work. I could never do all the work I have set out for me in a given day. It's impossible. I'll probably never finish my entire to-do list in a given day. For me personally, 
It's impossible. So why am I trying to do that? I'm missing out on life. I'm missing out on friends. I'm missing out on family. I'm missing out on things. And granted, some of those things I didn't need anymore. Like some of those friends I don't need anymore. Some of those events I don't need to go to. But like the idea of going to Buffalo Wild Wings with my homeboys and getting a drink and just talking sports and talking anything, like I wasn't even doing that. But the most thing I was doing was watching the Ravens on Sunday. And even then, I had my laptop in my hand. So, like, mm. that intensity became overbearing and unhealthy. That's interesting. So, I'm, I'm curious, what adjustments did you make from that? Like, what changed? The thing that changed was I started to put things on my calendar. Like, everything went on my calendar. So, that, when I say everything, I mean, I would put time on my calendar to watch TV. I put time on my calendar to call a friend. I put time on my calendar to go visit my mom. I, I, like, cause I was living by my calendar at that point. And so I used my calendar as a way to break up my day and my time. And like, almost like trick my mind into doing things other than work within a work frame, within like a workday framework. Mm. Right? Like I had to like yeah. physically you know what's interesting? put I think, these things on my calendar. I think it's actually a really good lesson there, to give which is like space. whenever things start to spiral, because I think, I think in life, right, you always have good days, you have bad days. And one thing I tell myself, you don't want to have, you don't want it to become a pattern where it's like bad day, bad day, bad day. You don't want it to spiral. And I think to your point, one of the things that stops things from spiraling is being able to take it back to basics, being able to return to like the fundamentals. And that's basically what you did by putting it on your calendar. It was like very micro. It was very action based. So you mentioned <laughs> having your first exit. I, I want to like, can you take me back to what that feeling was like? Because I think for me, it's like you, you spend, you have these certain targets, right? Like with this podcast, I have like a certain goal. I have 10, I want to get 10,000 listens by the end of this year, but that's like a, it's a relatively short term goal. Like when I really achieve something on that level, like I didn't even know what it would be in a podcast setting, but I, I just want to like, take me behind the curtain. Like, what was that feeling? Like, was it jubilation? Was it relief? Was it just fatigue? Like, what was that like? It was just relief. It was like <laughs> extreme relief. It was just like, all right, well, that's, that's over now. We got something out of it. <laughs> and I'll never forget, met this guy, a local angel investor here in Baltimore, who had once sold his company to Texas Instruments for like a lot of money, like, like way more than what I was in our company. And I remember asking him, like, what was that like? Well, it was the best part of like selling your company. And I'll never forget, he gave me the most depressing answer ever. He said, I never had to worry about payroll. I knew that all my employees were always going to get it. And I was like, that was the number one thing you took away from getting that exit? From becoming independently wealthy and like life-changing money? Like, that was the thing? Yeah, that was the thing. That was the realest thing somebody could have told me. Because like all the stresses and all the things you go through running a company to get to the point where you don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah, you got a payday, but like all that other stuff is just, you get to let that go. It was relief. But then after that relief, I wanted to go start another one right away. <laughs> what do you think the biggest misconception is of being a founder? Because I think in this era, and I think it's good actually in a way, but in this era, it's like romanticized a lot. Being able to own your own business, be your own boss. People look at the the benefits, like the positive aspects of it. And it's interesting that you mentioned like the payroll thing, like people don't think of the amount of responsibility it takes to actually be the person leading an organization. 
Like from your perspective, what would you say is the biggest misconception? Man, doing this stuff is hard. It's not fun. Like starting a company is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's not cool. It's not like you get to go out and go to all these parties. Like y'all see these founders on Instagram taking pictures with like expensive cars. First of all, those cars are rented or they ain't theirs. Don't believe don't be believing the hype. And like the amount and like people don't understand like how long it takes. Like, you know, VCs say their average investment to get to a next is eight years. That's just from the time you got money from a VC. So you probably were building that company for a year, two years, maybe even three years before that. So let's call it 10 years to get to a next. That's longer than the average marriage in the United States. That's how long it takes for a company to get to a next. Oh, and by the way, you may not be the CEO at that point when it exits, right? Because I think everybody wants to be the, wants to go to the New York Stock Exchange and wants to, you know, be the CEO of a public company. But the skill set to be the CEO of a public company is very different than the skill set to start a company. I personally don't ever want to have run a company with more than 50 yeah. more employees. Once you get to 50 employees, I'm tapping out. That's just, I just, I am just not interested beyond that. And it took me a long time yeah. to learn that about myself. I'm curious, like, okay, so you have the exit. What made you go from being an operator, I want to be an operator, to I want to be an investor? Like, what was that transition like? Talk about how the concept of rare breed VC even came up. What was the spark? So becoming an investor thing, like, you know, like as an entrepreneur, every entrepreneur who's ever raised capital probably at some point is like, ah, what these VCs do isn't all that special. Like, I could do that. I was no different. But I, I didn't know, like, I couldn't see a pathway to making that happen. And so my first company has the exit. My second company failed. I get this job at a marketing firm, local here in Baltimore. Decent job, make okay money. But it was doing something I didn't want to do. Wasn't using the skills that I learned as a CEO of a company. And then they got a client that I didn't agree with ethically, right? So like, it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, the day they announced winning this contract, I went to my CEO and gave him my, res my letter of resignation, really my two-week notice. And basically in that, I said, as a black man, I can't work for this organization. <laughs> and that was like a big deal. And so that's a Friday. And I had been telling everybody in the organization for weeks that like, yo, if we win this contract, I'm quitting. And everybody thought I was joking. My friends and family thought I was joking. I was like telling everybody, I was like, you know, we get this client, like I'm quitting. Like I'm half jokingly saying it. But when the moment came, I had to make a decision. So I quit. And I didn't have any plans of what to do next. Like I didn't know what was next. I just knew like I had marketable skills and like I can get a job, right? Like I just got finished running a technical team doing mostly front-end development when historically I had been a back-end developer. So now I'm like truly a full-stack developer before full-stack was really a term. And, you know, I got these skills of being the CEO of startups. Like I always got a startup company. I go join a company. Like I got skills. I can find them my way. And so that's a Friday. And so the very next Monday, I got this community-wide email from the investment arm of the state of Maryland saying they were hiring. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And it just so happened that one of my old mentors from my first company worked for this organization. So I, I'll never forget it. I'm at the job and I'm like, you know, you know when you don't give your two-week notice, you're not really working all that hard. You're just BSing on the job waiting for that last day to come. So I'm just there waiting for that last day. And so I walked outside and I called my, my old mentor. I'm like, hey. I saw y'all hiring. What do you think? You think I got to, you think, you know, it'd be worth it for me to apply. And, you know, in so many words, he said, you know, it's worth it for you going your hat in the ring. Like, I don't know how far to go, but why not? That's all I needed to hear. 
So I wrote my first ever cover letter and emailed my resume in to that job and that job only. That was the only job I applied for. Why? Because I'm an idiot. But that was the only job I applied for, not understanding how prestigious of a job it was, how competitive of a job it was. I just knew that, like, I knew startups well. And locally, you know, I had a really strong brand for helping companies. Now, I don't have a college degree or finance background, so, you know, those are two kind of big hurdles there <laughs> to get over, but, you know, whatever. So, four and a half months later, after three interviews, they take me to lunch, and they tell me I am not qualified for the position I apply. And then they proceed to tell me that they are creating this new junior position on staff and ask me if I was willing to take it. Now, mind you, by the time I was 24, I was a senior software engineer and managing teams. Now, you're telling me you're creating your junior position to bring me on staff? Yes, please. And thank you. Because I knew that was the only way I was ever going to break into venture. So I took a job making less money than I'd ever made in my professional career just for the opportunity to do investments. And so that's how I break in. So that's a, that's all luck and happenstance, right? Because like I quit my job because I quit my job working for the, you know, the, the marketing firm because of this client that I thought was racist. So that was all that. And just so happened the next week I see this email. Like if I if it wasn't for that fact that we got that client, I'd probably ignore that email. And I'm not a VC today. Rare breed comes from a founder, this woman who has a company. Her website is meatspundle.com. This black woman in Baltimore who wanted to create a wig dryer. And it was crazy to me there was no such thing as a wig dryer. Like wigs and hair weaves is a gigantic industry. And y'all don't have like dryers specifically for those? Like, nah, no such thing. And I was like, well, that's crazy. You mean to tell me you're going to build one? That's amazing. So I get to know this woman. She's an engineer at the time. She was in. She was working at the patent office as an examiner. Like she she builds stuff. I'm like just this amazing, amazing entrepreneur. And I watched her get nothing but no's for three years, even though I was working at an organization where I literally started a pre-seed fund for the state of Maryland to invest in founders like her, and still couldn't get her money. And so her answer to getting access to capital was to become a surrogate mother. And I watched her literally be willing to give birth to somebody else's children mm-hmm. for the opportunity to build her own company. And I got completely frustrated. And in that moment, I literally couldn't think of a venture fund in the United States that I could have worked at and made that investment. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was criminal. And so I basically decided in that moment that if I was ever going to back somebody like her, I was going to have to do it on my own terms. And so that's where the beginning of the idea of me starting my own venture fund and what would later go on to become Rear Breed. What do you think frustrated you so much? Was it the fact that, like, was it, like, the helplessness, the fact that you couldn't, like, make it happen? What would you say? 100%. The fact that I couldn't make it happen and that she was so brilliant. That I, had, I watched people time after time after time tell this woman no or that she couldn't or that she wasn't good enough. And it's just like, Nah, she's better than like 90% of the folks you see. Why can I see it and then you can't? What is it that I'm seeing that you're not? Am I am I just better at seeing this than you? Or are you just actively trying not to see this? I think you said you're actively trying not to see it. I never wanted to see a founder in that position again. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So that gives you, that sets the spark. So then what... Like, obviously, you're already working a, a job, right? Like, what is the next thing? So you have the spark, you have the inspiration, you have the conviction. Like, what was step one? Where did you Where did you go? So step one was trying to figure out, well, I still don't have that kind of degree or finance background, so let's, let me get some pedigree behind me. Or, like, 
you know, it's imposter syndrome setting in. Like I worked for, uh, I did investments on behalf of the state of Maryland, but the organization I worked for technically wasn't a venture firm. It's like the state organization. So like, all right, does that make me a VC or not? I don't know. So then I started doing these training programs like VC Unlock. VC Unlock, which is a program that's between this sponsored between 500 startups or 500 global and Stanford University. I got a diversity scholarship to go through that, learned a ton, got real conviction. And the biggest thing about that program was when I showed up, I knew most of this stuff. And this is like this, it just confirmed like, oh, I, I know what I'm doing. I can do this. Then I do VC University, which I got a diversity scholarship for that going through. And again, like, oh, I know this stuff. I do this. And then the last piece was like, how do you raise a fund? Who do you raise a fund from? Because again, I'm a state employee, so I don't make a lot of money. So I need to figure out like, you know, how do I, how do I do this? And a lot of it came down to money. And so for the longest time, I, I wouldn't make the move. And then in 2020, I say, I'm going to do this. January 2020, I'm like, I'm going to raise a fund. I'm going to do this. We're going to all do this. March of 2020 come around. COVID hit. The whole world shut down. I'm just like, well, I'm going to wait maybe another year, maybe two years. I'll keep my day job. We'll figure it out later. Mm. And then George Floyd happens. And after George Floyd happens, that's when I started tweeting. Just because I had stuff on my mind about the George Floyd murders, murder that I just had to get out, so I used Twitter. And once I was done with that, I just decided I was going to tweet every day for two weeks just to see what would happen. And in that process, I met a founder in Dallas, Texas, building a company called RoboAmp, helps websites load faster, who was having a hard time raising capital because he was a Latin guy in Dallas, Texas. That was the only reason he was having a hard time raising capital. If he lived anywhere else, or if he lived in Silicon Valley and wasn't Latin, he'd have probably been raised a bunch of money. And so in the process of me trying to help him raise some capital. One of my one of my mentors said, I don't want to invest in that company. I want to invest in every company you find. So here's here's some money, go raise it. And I was like, look, man, it's COVID, the world's going crazy, there's protests everywhere. I don't know if this is the right time to do it. And he was like, well if you want my money, this is when you go and do it. And I was like, okay. And so then that starts the process of me trying to figure out and learn how to actually raise a fund. But that's kind of like the push over the ledge to like Yeah. It's like the the approach is it's just so interesting because I think the way that you do things, it takes a lot of humility because it's like you kind of step in a lot of humility and a lot of faith because you like step into these challenges with not really seeming to have a clear path of how to get there. And I think to a certain extent, when you're younger, you're kind of forced into that because you don't know anything like there's when, when you're just coming out of university, there is no clear path, really, because you just haven't done anything. So everything seems new. But it seems like even as you were like overcoming these challenges, you still had like the humility into something else that you had no idea about. Um, and it's really, to be honest, to put up with that level of like discomfort. What, what, what would you say? Like, why, why did you, why did you put up with that level of discomfort to like start again, keep starting again? Because so many things have ceilings. And my way to break past those ceilings was to start from the bottom if I had to, to create a new path. Right, like when I'm working for as a government contractor, like I can make a lot of money, but for me to get to the point where like I want to be a multimillionaire, I now have to learn the skill set of business development. I got to grow within the company. I got to manage larger teams. I got to start helping win projects. Then I got to start bringing projects in. If I can start bringing business to the organization, all right, maybe I can work my way up. That's like a 20, 30 year path. Maybe if I can figure that out. 
Or I could try to go start my own company and maybe, you know, 10 years, I'd be, you know, really well off. So let's go try that. Well, that didn't work out. Cool. Well, now's the chance for me to be an investor. I know making, I know investors don't make as much money as people think, but you can't get rich doing it. Well, it's a much quicker path to me becoming a millionaire as a VC than it was for me being an engineer working for the government, right? And now that I'm here and I've started my own venture fund, I there are pathways to me becoming a billionaire. Now, am I ever going to become a billionaire? Probably not. But there are literal pathways that I can see, multiple pathways I can see to become a billionaire. I don't know if I could have seen those in my previous life. And so it's just keep grinding to get to the point where I can get closer and closer to a, a bigger outcome while also learning what it is that I enjoy doing. Like I started off as an engineer. I hated coding. I don't actually like coding. I was really good at it. But I, don't, I didn't like it. I love talking to people. I love meeting people. I love doing deals. Like I love doing business development. I, I, I had to learn that later in life as a CEO to find out that that's even something that I enjoy. And now I get to do that every day while helping people. I love helping people. I get to do deals every day and help people every day. Couldn't be a better job while also having pathways to becoming very wealthy and taking care of my family in a way that, you know, I couldn't have imagined as a child. But those only come with risk. Like everybody thinks it's so cool where I am now. Like I still got a lot more to do. I got a lot more work to do. But the amount of work it took me to get here, most people wouldn't want to put up with it. Right? It's like everybody wants to be Steph Curry. Everybody wants to be like, it's LeBron James or whatever. Yes, they have some God-given talents. But what Steph Curry is most known for in his NBA circles is his crazy workouts where other NBA players show up and want to come hang out and work out with Steph and can't hang because he's putting in that work. Do you feel like getting up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday to go put 10 hours in an empty gym doing random crazy drills? No. You probably don't. Do you want to wake up on day 16 of a calendar where you got 25 or 28 meetings lined up back to back? No bathroom breaks, no lunch breaks, just meeting as many people as you can because you're trying to figure out how to raise a fund? That ain't fun. That's what I did to get here. It reminds me, I think it was David Goggin. He said, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Like everyone wants that, that final result, but you don't want to do what it takes to get there. I'm curious. Based on your, on your reflection, because it seems like you had to go through a lot of toil, a lot of hard work, a lot of uh, tough breaks to get to the point you're at now. If you honestly reflected on it, do you think that there was an easier way to do it? And, and, and you know what? And would you have even wanted the easier way? I'm curious about that as well. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there is an easier way. Hell yeah, I would have wanted the easier way. Who wants to do it the hard way? I did it the hard way because I couldn't think of an easier way at the time. Right. Like I, I, I didn't know what the easier way was or the easier way was beyond me. Or maybe I didn't have the skill set or even the intelligence to do it the easier way. Right. Some people say work smarter, not harder. I'm not one of those people. I'm a harder worker. Like, I don't know if I can work as smart as you. So if I can't, I just got to work harder than you. Like, I, I got to go with what I know. Do I wish I could have gone an easy way? Yeah, because the hard way is hard. But it's just the, it was just the way I could think of to get it done. And as long as I get to the outcome I'm, I'm going for, that's all that matters, right? But yeah, if I could have done it easier, woo, life would be so much better. I'm curious, if you had to give your, your like, the, the sophomore in college version of yourself, 
like the Mac now had to give that Mac, like you gave him the blueprint, you gave him like the guide. Like, what would you even tell him? Would you tell him anything? Because I know some people are so appreciative of their journey. They're just like, whatever the way it has to happen, just do it that way. I would have taught myself the power of networking. And I made myself start to network sooner and start learning about how this world worked in venture sooner. Like if I had if I had started networking back then, who knows where I'd be today, right? Like everybody talks, everybody says your network is your net worth. But most people don't understand what that actually means until you have one. It wasn't until I started to have a network that I understood what that mean, what that saying meant, right? Like my ability to put out a tweet, send out a text, send an email that gets me in front of a decision maker is power. And it's power in ways that people don't even consider. So I'll give you an example, right? There's a, there's a former Baltimore Raven by the name of Trevor Price. Trevor Price is an award-winning author, creative, whatever. He has a show on Netflix called Kulapari. Kulapari Warrior Frogs. He created this graphic novel about these warrior frogs who are fighting against scorpions. Like the bad guys are scorpions, the good guys are frogs, right? Really interesting story, very kid-friendly, whatever. He now runs a movie and animation studio here in Baltimore, right? And so my 11-year-old son wants to be an animator one day. Or he's starting to be interested in animating and drawing. I have the ability to pick up my phone and text Trevor and be like, yo, my son's interested in animating. Can he come down and hang out at your studio for a week? Or can he intern for the summer? And Trevor's like, anything for you, Matt. That's real power like that affects generations that the ability to do that could change the course of my son's life change the course of my life or could change the course in the in the life of a company that i support like the ability to pick up a phone and just have those conversations and make those things happen i didn't know what that was until i had it so when people say your network is your net worth that's real see i want to go deeper with that because i think there's different levels to this and this is one of the things I've realized, right? There's the, there's the level where someone's just aware of you. So for instance, like I sent you like a cold email or a cold DM. And then I guess the first level is you just respond. Like in a way, I guess that's networking. Like you're aware of me now, but we're not like friends. We're not, if I called you and I was like, I need an internship or I need this. It's not like, oh, job done right there. And so I think there's a lot of people that have kind of, maybe they can get people to be aware of them. But I think when, once you go deeper than that, it's not even networking anymore. It's actually more like relationship building. It's like the same as like getting yeah. friends or like getting a close friend. I'm curious. I want to know, because the one thing I've realized from following you on Twitter for years is people have a lot of like, um, they have like genuine goodwill. Like they want to see you succeed. Like they, there's like a care. There's like an emotion. There's a real resonance there. I want to know how you do that. Like, not networking. I want to know how you do that. So true networking is relationship building, right? It's like over periods of time. Like, I've known Trevor for years at this point. Right? When I first met, I was like, I used to play for the Ravens. I know you. You've won Super Bowls with them. Like, you know, I was like, you know, I was, I was fanboy. And football ain't like his first love, though, like being creative is. So I've got to know him and build relationships. The reason why I think people genuinely have goodwill towards me online is because I come with ethos of wanting to help and give goodwill back, right? And I think that's one. I think number two is I try to just come off as just being me. I'm not trying to be anything that I'm not. 
right? I'm not trying to be bigger than what it is. I'm not trying to be smarter than you or better than you, have more money than you. Like, if I want to help, I just genuinely want to help. It ain't got nothing to do with none of that other stuff. And I think people recognize that authenticity, right? Like, if I was playing an act that wasn't core to who I was, it would come off at some point. Like, people would see. They would see through it. But, like, you know, I had somebody... I, t- I spoke to a guy earlier today who's starting a venture fund. He's like, hey, you know, might be looking for advisors. You know, a lot of people say advisors take, you know, X percentage of the fund or, you know, get paid through the fund. Like, if we wanted to work together. And I told him, like, look, man, all you got to do is be successful and work with me for me. Like, take my cell phone number down, text me whenever you need some help, and I'm here to support. He's like, you don't want nothing? Like, nah, I just want you to make it because we need more folks making it. And, you know, they were caught off guard by that. But that's like genuinely how I feel because when I started off as an entrepreneur, it was people like that who helped me. Like, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for all the people who helped me. Matter of fact, I told you I had that six-figure job early in life. What happened was when I got my first job, making more money than I thought was humanly possible at that age, I started getting promoted and, and getting raises like every three months. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. I thought I must have been just like the best employee in the world. Well, in actuality, even though they paid me more than I thought was possible, they were actually underpaying me. And so they were trying to catch my, my, my salary up before I recognized I was getting underpaid. And there was a group of older men who I started hanging out with who taught me the game. And so that's how I learned that every time you move from job to job in that world, you get like anywhere from a 20 to 30, if not more percentage of increase in salary. Okay, you ain't got to tell me twice. Right. But it was them who showed me the way to do that. And when I became a founder, it was folks locally who were taking meetings with me, not looking for anything in return, teaching me how this stuff worked, showing me the way. Now, I'll never forget this. David Hall, one one of the first black investors I've ever met in person. Actually, I think he is the first black investor I ever met directly in person. So David Hall at the time worked for Revolution. He now runs the Rise of the Rest Fund, which is part of Revolution. And he pulled me to the side at an event in D.C. to tell me about a mistake I had made, about how I had screwed something up. I can't tell you how thankful I was for that moment because I was making a, a very amateurish mistake, not knowing that I was making that mistake, just trying to be a founder who was hustling. And, you know, here it was, this, this black man pulling me to the side to let me know what I did wrong. He could have just blown me off and said, oh, he don't know what he's doing. And it's like, those things really help you move forward and matter and none of those moments across my path had any dollar amounts tied to them so the most genuine versions of help you'll get typically aren't tied to dollars so i tried not to tie dollars to when i give people help i think that's such a good i think that's such a powerful such a good point which is like it's the it's the time it's the care it's the feedback and i think there's a lot i've seen it a lot you see it in the workplace especially like people don't want to have difficult conversations. So a lot of the times when it comes to like negative feedback, you'll never get it because people just didn't want to have that conversation, which they didn't know how you would react or whatever. And so when someone actually gives you feedback, especially if it's negative and they give it to you in like a very constructive way, that's actually a lot of care because they don't know how you're going to react because some people might just get like really angry at that. So the fact that they would even take that risk when they don't have is genuine care. It's genuine investment in ship. And uh, yeah, I think you're so right. That's not tied to it from doing that. That's just care. Um, I'm conscious. Uh, 
I'm going to finish with this question. And, um, one of the things I found interesting that you mentioned earlier on was like the pathway to like earning millions. And then you said that you see a few, you've even seen a few pathways to earning, I don't know, a billions. I guess I have like a two part question. One, what would you say is that those pathways that you've seen to earning billions and it doesn't have to be something like super specific. It can even be like the principles or like the framework of how you even amass that level of wealth. And then two, I'm just interested in like, do you have like an end point? Like, do you have like a, you're, you're a hustler, right? I can feel it. You're a hustler. Does that ever, is there a point where you're like, okay, like I did it. You know, like in Avengers when Thanos is like, he did the whole thing with the planets and he's now like, okay, yeah. I guess I done my work. I'll like go chill now. You have that? <laughs> I think you're muted. I don't know if I have that. I don't know if I have that number. Like like I ask founders sometimes, you know, what's your number? Like what's the dollar back give you to get you to walk away from this thing happening? I've never been able to answer that for myself. I don't actually know what that number is. So I, I don't know. But the pathways, how you find the pathways. What happens is, again, your network is your network. As I've gotten into this industry as an investor, I now spend my time around other people who are very wealthy and other people who think about investments and other people who think about different types of investments and alternative investments, which leads to just random opportunities. Like, hey, my, my cousin is part of this group that's investing in a high rise in Miami. Do you want to get in? What? You know, my cousin, you know, my dad owns an oil company and he's thinking about purchasing a copper mine. You want to invest, right? My friend just started a new metaverse and they're going to be offering real estate in the metaverse. Do you want to get in the first hundred acres, right? Like these things is almost, it's not insider trading, right? But it's like, you get to have first you get to have front row seats to opportunities that, like, when I was an engineer working for the government, I'd never see, right? Like, like, you're just not in those worlds. And so now that I'm in the world where it's all about money, that's what people talk about. Those are the opportunities people bring up. And so once you have money, it's a lot easier to make more money, right? The idea, if I put $100 million into this hedge fund, you know, just making... Four percent, four percent on that returns me four million. <laughs> like four percent returns on this hundred billion for you know making one or two transactions in a given day is now enough money to pay for my you know all my god kids to go to college and all their first cars and all their parents' houses off and I still have the original hundred dollars hundred million I started with so let's go do that again right like. <laughs> the ways you can make and move money just changes when you get these opportunities. Yeah. You know what it is? Really it's interesting because we've been, a lot of my recent episodes, network. we've discussed this, which is like leverage. And I guess, in a sense, the leverage that you're speaking about is like reputation. It's like network. It's also you have capities, you can go after it. Now, I'm really, I'm really grateful we got this time. I, I love like, I think of my, my podcast episodes as like seasons. And I want every episode, I want it to give something different. It's almost the way, I guess, like when you have like a portfolio, right? Like you want to round it out. And I just, 
I just think the story is so good. Like your story is very untraditional. The way you went after it is very untraditional and you just made it. Love that story. So yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> Thank you for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. A lot different than most podcasts. Nice. I'm glad. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Thread. Please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps me grow the pod. Also, let me know who you'd like to see come on the podcast next. I'm Callum. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you on the next one.